My message this morning draws heavily from both biblical and Unitarian Universalist documents from which I will quote frequently. When we're children, we learn about rules. We learn about rewards and punishments for following or not following those rules. We learn about telling the truth, about fear of punishment, and that grown-ups make the rules. As children, we experience something of an Old Testament perspective about covenants. Covenants are mutually accepted binding agreements between two parties, like contracts. A covenant is a promise that's arrived at by mutual agreement, is held sacred as a matter of honor and respect. It has several variations in meaning. A solemn agreement that's binding on all parties. A covenant's a formal and legally binding agreement or contract, such as a lease or one of the clauses in an agreement of that kind. A covenant may be a lawsuit for damages that is brought because of the breaking of a legal covenant. A covenant is the promises that were made in the Bible between God and the Israelites who agreed to worship no other gods. In the olden days, in biblical times, covenants usually were made between a ruler or a big landholder and his subjects or the people he was responsible for, the people who worked for him. The ruler or landowner promised to care for his farmers and people in return for their labor and their loyalty. In biblical terms, covenants are made through the Spirit giving a message to the individual or through the voice of Christ who speaks for the Father. The covenant made to Moses was that he was to be the father of a great nation. Abraham was blessed that the Savior would come through his line. It was through Moses that the Ten Commandments were given. Now, during the Protestant Reformation and with the advent of the printing press, a group of heretics rebelled against the covenants made by the church and insisted on the right to interpret laws themselves, rather than using the church and its officials as mediators of their relationships with God. They wanted to deal directly with God. Some of the interpretations of Scripture in the church's interpretations were not acceptable to them. They were not mutual agreements, but one-sided agreements. Note that those folks assumed that there was a personal God who spoke to people, acted for and against people, rewarded people, and punished people who broke the laws and rules of God. Thus, we have a common saying when something unpleasant or bad happens to us. It's God's will. Or God is punishing me for my sins. The covenant construct expanded, though, to include a relationship with Jesus Christ as the representative of God, the New Covenant. This New Covenant was transformed by the advent of Jesus from a covenant of fear and reward or punishment into a love, a covenant of love and salvation. Now, there's a parallel here to the development of intellectual and emotional abilities and skills in children. When we are very young, or we are at a low level of intellectual and moral development, we are motivated to avoid punishment, to avoid punishment by fear, 
And we learn how to please our parents to do things in a way that will result in rewards, thus avoid punishment. As children grow older and develop intellectually, they learn about law outside families, at school, and in society at large. Children learn about rules and laws that are larger and more comprehensive than family rules. This creates many interesting conversations around the dinner table sometimes. They also learn that to follow laws which are usually made by thoughtful people is a good thing. Because people have decided among themselves that certain behaviors such as stealing or violence are best followed or forbidden for a reason. Not just fear of a God who rewards and punishes, but because it is a more productive and peaceful way to live in community. These things take a long time to develop. Uh, you know, we are one of the few, if not the only, uh, highly developed nation that still has a death penalty. In Western Europe, you cannot belong to the European Union if you execute people. And people wonder about that, and they say, well, you know, those people killed each other right and left for a long, long, long time, and they finally figured out that it just didn't make sense to kill people. And so they have been away with capital punishment. It took a long time. The concept of covenant is now often used to create mutual agreements of what it means to be in right relationship among individuals, in organizations, and among congregations. We Unitarian Universalists use covenants to create working relationships between the UUA and member congregations and within and between individual congregations. We also use covenants to strengthen our relationships in the communities we live in. For example, the Reverend Burton Carley, a beloved former minister of this church, has written, Ralph Waldo Emerson once observed that there's a crack in everything that God has made. The ancient Hebrew story about the Garden of Eden suggests that right at the mythological beginning of time, there was the possibility of things going wrong. As we live in an imperfect world and are imperfect people, the primary act of faith in the goodness of life is to be engaged in the kind of restorative work that heals, binds, and makes whole what is fractured and broken. Part of the mission of Unitarian Universalist congregations is to move outside our walls and join in the building of bridges across the barriers that separate people from one another. It's the work of restoring, creating, and maintaining right relationships. At the heart of being in right relationship is the concept of covenant. It's the very basis for how we create congregations by the voluntary promises we make to each other. A covenant creates right relationships through partnership without dominance and without submission. It creates a bond of trust upon which all other work is built. Now, did you all listen to what those children were saying down there? They know what covenant means. In their terms, it means no punching, 
no hidden, and no something else. I forget. Yeah, there you go. You see, out of the mouths of babes. Now, they are being taught in our Sunday schools what covenant means. And look how teeny tiny they are. Those teeny tiny ones know probably more about covenant than all the rest of us put together. And it is still, though, operating at a reasonably low level with them. It will get bigger and it expands. They're not doing it out of fear of punishment. They are learning the positive approach at a very early age. We're pushing the envelope with those youngsters, and I'm proud of it. The basis of our trust is the acknowledgement of the integrity of the other person and a mutual pledge to achieve together that which no one can achieve alone. Congregation-based community organizing, the sort of things that we are experiencing with the local interfaith organization, offer a means to be part of the restorative work to which people of faith are called. It's one of my greatest joys to go to those meetings. I sit there with Muslims, Episcopalians, I call them Episcopalians, you know, uh, you know, Baptists, most of them are black, you know, and over the months and years we have developed a wonderful feeling of trust, and I urge any of you who are interested in that to get involved. These people that I work with are highly intelligent very motivated. They've been in community organizing long, long years, and they know what they're doing. So it's a really gratifying experience, and, and it's open for you. Community-based organizing deepens and expands the possibility for us to be in right relationship with people outside our own congregations and to form through citizen politics a covenant that makes the many one and heals the us versus them polarization of people. Now, being the imperfect people we are, I mean, I can't speak for you all, but I am certainly imperfect. Are any of you all perfect? You know what? I bet if we had gone to Sunday school when we were two and three and learned about covenants, we'd be a lot more perfect than we are. What do you think? Hmm? Sometimes we act in ways that defy our covenants, and in doing so, we create conflicts, anxiety, and anger. At such times, we need to work to achieve mutual understanding and reconciliation and to restitch the relationship so that we can be together genuinely and authentically again. It's not good enough to cover up our disappointments or our anger with polite chatter. Uh-uh. When we engage in reconciliation, we invite the kind of change that will transform our relationships into a new, more whole, more healthy, more constructive, more productive one. Apology alone is not enough to achieve reconciliation. In fact, it may do more to relieve the burden of the person who caused the injury than it does for the injured party. Paula Cole Jones, a marvelous UA consultant who lives in Washington, D.C., has written an article called Reconciliation as a Spiritual Discipline that I commend to you. It's on the UU website, and if you have trouble finding it, just give me a shout. I'll point you to it. A 
Apology followed by forgiveness can be an act of generosity, but still may not complete the work of establishing a sense of trust. Reconciliation, to restore friendship or harmony or to settle or resolve differences, transforms both parties by bringing them to a new consciousness about the way they see, treat, and represent each other. When we reconcile, we become different. The other person becomes different. And we join together in a new and different, challenging and productive, constructive relationship. Reconciliation is a competency that takes works to develop, and it requires commitment. I looked uh, at Archbishop Desmond Tutu on television last night or the night before. I can't remember. And, you know, while the other fellow was off in jail for 27 years, Bishop Tutu was right there among the people, speaking up, speaking out, and then he ended up chairing the Truth uh, and Reconciliation Commission that they had in South Africa. He's worked at it for a long, long time. Maria Harris is an important religious educator, and she offers us the philosophy that everything we do is educating religiously. And this has to do with something called the learning congregation, which comes out of the learning organization. But anyway, the entire course of a congregation's life is its curriculum. We're learning together every single day. And the context for this lifelong creative and educating process is our congregation, our faith, our trust, and our working together. Among us, there are about about five central aspects of Unitarian Universalism. By the way, in case you all haven't figured it out, I give a sermon on Unitarian Universalism once a month. And that's because we have some new people who haven't had a lot of experience. So I make it a point to do this once a month. And so this is for November. Okay? It's important. One of these aspects is social and community. The people and relationships of the church. The pastoral care networks. The social events and the community celebrations. You know, our, our potlucks, our getting together. Social justice is another We do service projects and activities in the wider community. We have worship and rituals that are practiced. We have learning. The more formal learning context of religious education classes and workshops and adult programs, as well as the informal learning that comes from engaging in all of the other aspects of life in the church, which is serving on committees or teams or putting together Uh, um, uh, I keep wanting to call it a garage sale. It's not a garage sale. Bazaar. Rummy sale. A silent auction. You know, those things everybody in the whole church works on. And then there's leadership. There are opportunities for all ages to learn and practice leadership skills. And also the coaching and mentoring practices of professional staff and congregation leaders in empowering others. Everyone in this congregation has an opportunity to become a leader in the church. All you have to do is raise your hand, step up, give me a call, come by the office, you know, 
there's plenty to be done. None of it is terribly difficult, but it's fun and you are transforming yourself when you do that. There's a covenant for excellence in religious education. Once created, the covenant is intended to be a vital and sacred part of an intergenerational faith community, a true promise from the heart. Being part of a religious community, then, is a personal commitment that reflects the theological vision, a sense of the fundamentally interdependent or covenantal nature of existence. Being in community, then, is not incidental to being a Unitarian Universalist, but being in community is intrinsic and inescapable. The religious community is the vital matrix of the formation of its members, diverse personal ministries. Every one of you is a minister. Did you know that? You don't have to go to school to be a minister. It helps. But every one of us is a minister. Every one of us is a minister. And every time we do something kind for another person, we are ministering not just to that person or for that person, but for ourselves and for our faith. In turn, our members reshape the community. Talking with newcomers about Unitarian Universalist faith, we often emphasize that ours is not a single centralized church, but an association of churches and fellowships. In other words, our denominational structure, the Unitarian Universalist Association, is a voluntary association of independent, self-governing congregations. And if you think this doesn't cause a lot of sand to fly up in people's faces. I, I belong to a minister's chat group. It's very hard to read all the stuff that comes through, so I do it selectively. But there are people who are saying, what's wrong with our denomination is that we don't have any direction from above. Other people say, what's wrong with our congregations and our association and our faith is that we have too much direction from above. What's wrong is that we don't have enough structure. What's wrong is we have too little structure. What's wrong is it takes us too long to get anything passed. They, They talk about it all the time. Our system of governance is imperfect. It is dynamic. It is growing. It is changing all the time. And every person in our denomination has an opportunity to participate in the way that growth and change happens. All you have to do is just get involved, you know, with uh, something in denominational affairs. We're not that far from Boston. And let me tell you that the people in Boston know we're here. Sometimes we call our religious communities churches, but sometimes we also call them fellowships or societies or congregations. Sometimes we just call ourselves Unitarian Universalists, and by that we suggest that no term is adequate for the group, or that maybe we are individuals first and foremost. And there we have another tension. You know, are we individualistic or are we communal and communal? Sometimes we use the term parish to refer to a local congregation, although parish properly refers to the geographical area covered by a congregation. People in Louisiana know about that. 
The lack of common terminology, though, which is in part rooted in our dissenting tradition, tends to confuse discussions of the basic meaning of being in a religious community. <coughs> a congregation may serve many purely social needs, and that is a danger, by the way. <coughs> it's an asset, but it's also a danger. Because the church is a social organization, but the congregation to be truly in faith needs to be more than a social group that simply just has fun and has potlucks. Although that's very important. First and foremost, the congregation must serve our need for a spiritual community, a community of mutual commitment and caring and support. We have to understand that commitment to a local, face-to-face -face religious community, that's us here, a congregation, is intrinsic to our faith. We may share an understanding of sociological, historical, and organizational perspectives in the religious community, but because we are often radical individualists for whom religion is a private or an inward feeling, a theological perspective on the church, our religious community, sometimes seems incomprehensible to us. We forget that we are part of something larger sometimes when we are thinking about our individual selves and individual concerns. So what does Unitarian Universalism, which embodies liberal religions and values, have to do with covenants? Well, we use covenants at all levels to communicate among ourselves. If you take nothing else home from this service, if you take nothing else home from this service, I hope you will try to begin thinking in terms of covenants with your family, your friends, and your co-workers. There's something sacred about a covenant as opposed to just a promise. It's weighty. It's important. The UUA is constituted by a covenant into which we, the member congregations, gather and enter. The Cambridge Platform of 1648 reflected the biblical concept of a covenant between God and the people of God under the Lordship of Christ. Now, these ideas were central in the theology of the New England Puritans, from which American Unitarianism derives. We came from the Puritans. Their congregations, a significant number of which became Unitarians in the early 19th century, expressed their bond of unity, their common faith and purpose, in the form of covenants. And these covenants remained in use among these churches long after the ancient Christian creeds had fallen into disuse in some of those churches. Today, the term covenant is often used to explain how a non-creedal church like ours can assert its unity of purpose, if not necessarily its unity of belief. To our knowledge, covenant had not been used in any official document until the adoption of the UUA principle statement in 1985, indicating a stronger bond among congregations in the Unitarian Universalist movement than before. The principle statement is also covenantal in its form. 
It states seven commitments to shared values and implicitly, if not explicitly, beliefs. These commitments form the core of the covenant itself. Our principles are stated as moral ideals, reflecting our very cautious approach to theological affirmations, at least in terms of we language. One exception might be the seventh principle, which can be understood as a vision of ultimate reality, the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. Uh, you know, they, they worked long and hard to get that adopted. You remember that uh, folk singer who's come down here a couple of times, Jim Scott? You all heard him? He worked on the adoption of the seventh principle. It's assumed some prominence because it reflects ecological ideals and resonates spiritually with our times. second part of the principle statement begins, the living tradition which we share draws from many sources. Religious, as distinct from secular covenants, are grounded in spiritual realities that were understood traditionally as divine gifts. For these gifts, the people entering the covenant acknowledge gratitude. Now, James Luther Adams, this wonderful theologian, has emphasized that an authentic covenant is rooted in love, not law. Rules and regulations are secondary to the originating motive of the covenant. The sources section of the UUA principle statement fulfills this motivating function by saying, in effect, we are grateful for being heirs to a living tradition. See this number? Singing in the living tradition that has taken these diverse forms. The psychic impact of this understanding is immense. Presumably, we draw significant meaning from all of our sources. The sources section also legitimizes Unitarian Universalist diversity by implying that the following traditions all contribute to a common living tradition. Mystical, Prophetic, universal, Jewish, Christian, humanist, earth-centered. This seems to be another new sign of our willingness to use we language in theology. In fact, several subgroups with specific theological identities have emerged among us and have gained prominence in recent years. For example, pagans, Christians, Jews, Buddhists, and humanists. All of us, together, can worship as Unitarian Universalists. The only important thing to keep in mind is that we may not be in complete agreement with every other group or every other person, but that doesn't mean that we can't all worship together. The diversity can be a positive gain in terms of our inclusiveness and willingness to make substantive theological or spiritual affirmations, but... It also has a cost because some of the sources are identified with particular subgroups of Unitarian Universalism itself, and they remind us of our lack of theological unity. So we have a constant tension between maybe the pagans and the humanists or the Christians and the humanists. I mean, there's always a tension going on here. And let me tell you folks, it is hard work to be a Unitarian Universalist. I thought it was hard work to be a good Christian. 
They don't know anything. They don't know what horror is about. I mean, this takes constant uh, self-awareness, constant questioning. What is going on here? Constant reminding ourselves of the processes. A constant reminding of ourselves that we have to work harder at it. We have to work harder at listening to the other person and trying to understand. I was on the phone the other night with a friend, and my friend started going on and on and on about her work. You know, and by this time I was beginning to hold the phone out here, and I all of a sudden thought to myself, no, this person, this friend that I'm supposed to be supporting because she's telling me all this stuff, is telling me something that's really important to her. And I really need to listen intently so that I can understand that. Because if I don't, she will feel over the phone that I'm not listening, that I'm not hearing her. And for someone to pour out their heart about whatever is a huge compliment. Now, she was pouring out her heart about her work, which I think is duller than dishwater, but that doesn't matter. It's important to that other person who's telling you something. Very. So I just had to pull myself up. As Unitarians, we hold that every unit of existence is inherently valuable and to be treated as such. We contend that the cosmos is unitary. Now, I don't know what that means. I have a slight idea what it means. But anyway, that's some contention, and I'll have to look at it. That reality is indivisible and whole, and that God or the goddess is one. Do you all understand that? I don't. I've read that. That's what Unitarians are supposed to think and believe. Well... I'm going, to, I'm going to go into that a little more because I think that is more complicated than I'm ready to discuss. And I have been to school. As universalists, this is easier for me to understand, we contend that wisdom is discoverable in every era and every corner of the universe. And that the only salvation worth having is communal, not individual, and that all creatures are held in the internal Embrace of a loving deity. I like that. We are a confessional faith in that each of us is ultimately accountable for stating and then embodying our own bedrock convictions. It's one thing to state them. It's another thing to be accountable. The invented individual is prized in our midst and universalists are well known as card-carrying heretics Literally, choice makers in all we say and do. Having all those choices is a heavy responsibility. It doesn't make life more fun. It makes life more complicated, I think. So, if someone asks us, what does our church believe? What we say is, well, congregations don't really believe. People believe. So, if you're interested, let me share some of the principles and values that I give my loyalty to. And then I'll gladly hear about yours. It's very difficult to describe our faith to people. But we are bound together in covenant. We focus on shared vows rather than set creeds. 
Our lives are ultimately measured by right relations instead of right beliefs. Right relations rather than right beliefs. We promise our spiritual kin that we will comfort, celebrate, challenge, and companion one another for better or worse ongoingly. Hosea Ballou, a wonderful universalist, says, If we have love, no disagreement can do us any harm. But if we have not love, no agreement can do us any good. It's wonderful, isn't it? A mature theology, then, is composed of confessions that mature into covenants and are incarnated in community where we venture to live the interdependent web. Up close and personal. Ours is a path of institutionalized spirituality rather than private piety. We are historically rooted in the radical wing of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Bonafide protesters resist injustices and counter falsehoods, as well as testify on behalf of all we cherish. I will never forget the night here, that Sunday night after the silent auction, when we had about 100 people here of all faiths and all colors, and we sang together and we prayed together and we worshiped together on behalf of those youths in Gina. It was the best moment I've ever had as a minister because we were and you know what we fed 70 people that night with the leftovers from the silent auction and we all sat down and people lingered people lingered and talked we are called to converse not to convert speaking the truth in love is the litmus test of full-spirited dialogue. Truth without love becomes callous, or perhaps even cruel. Love without truth is sentimental or vacuous. We would always convey our religious heritage and, identify, and, and identity as if speaking to persons we respect and value. That says to me that when I'm talking to my... The cousin in Longview, the fundamentalist Baptist that I share with you from time to time, that I can't talk down to her. I mean, I, I just feel in my heart that I'm right and she's wrong. And is it any good for me to say that to her or to act like that to her? No. And you know, through the years, it's taken us about ten years we have really made some progress. Because she listens to me and I listen to her very respectfully. And she's not going to change her mind. And I may change my mind, but it's certainly not going to be in her direction. And, you know, and we love each other. And, you know, this is a real important achievement for me because I like a lot of other people, like to hang out with people who think like I do. Don't y'all? Yeah, it's more comfortable. Sure it is. Uh-uh. 
You know, if you can make peace and a loving relationship with somebody that you really disagree with over fundamental things, you know, that's an achievement. I'm real proud of it. So speaking the truth in love is the litmus test of full-spirited dialogue. Whenever you are beckoned to communicate your faith, remember to wear and share your principles lightly, seriously, but never grimly. The way I express this often is that I take my work seriously, but I don't take myself seriously. I'm just a goofy person. You know, who's trying to do right and trying to save the world and sometimes doing well and sometimes not doing well. But, but I don't take myself seriously. I take the work very seriously. Sometimes making covenants work can be messy. We have to emphasize trust and diversity and openness and reconciliation. Without trusting one another, it's difficult for us to live authentically to govern ourselves effectively, or to build a true beloved community at home and in the world. I think it would be really keen if in the near and distant future we could shake some of the bugs out of the bags we carry around as we move forward to do our work as faithful people in this wonderful, caring community. You all are very special. Don't ever forget it. There is a spirit here in this church, in this congregation, that has developed, emerged, evolved from each one of you. And that spirit is the overarching spirit of this congregation. It is unique. It is special. It is a treasure. This place is a treasure. Don't ever forget it. It is worth fighting for. It is worth living for. It is worth giving for. It is worth being and growing for. Amen.